Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. We are in the midst of a uh, teaching preaching series at the moment that started back in early June at the start of winter, a winter teaching series that we simply called Word Up. And that is my very hip way of trying to encourage you to dig into the scriptures over winter. This is a time to put your roots down, uh, to get ready to bud and blossom in spring. Okay, let's just say that. So, uh, but I'm encouraging over these weeks or over this winter season to word up and to be a people uh, that dig into the scripture. For the first week of this series, uh, actually I spent two weeks looking at how to read the Bible. That's a good place to start, isn't it? How to read the Bible. We looked at five things. A, E, I, O, and U. How to read the Bible. A, with appreciation. If you're going to receive anything, have a heart of appreciation and that word will go deep into a good heart. E, expectation. When you read the Bible, do so expecting God to speak. A, E, I. I is intention. Read the Bible with intentionality. Know why you're reading it and know what type of uh, structure or whatever you're reading through. A-E-I. Oh, you should read the Bible with openness, a willingness to learn, an openness to say, I don't know it all and I might be wrong. It's one of the hardest ones, isn't it? A-E-I-O and you, and you, I said, was uh, reading the Bible with an understanding of what the Bible is and how it works, an understanding of the rules of Bible interpretation. And the fancy pants word for that is hermeneutics. And part of my job in this series is to help you uh, to read the Bible for yourself, to understand how it works. Last week, we looked at not how to read the Bible, but we looked at how to handle the Bible. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, make sure you're a workman who correctly handles the word of truth. There is a right way and a wrong way to handle the Bible. And if it's handled well, God's word can be a real blessing to you. And if it's handled poorly, it can do you a lot of damage. And a lot of damage has been caused to people all over the world, all throughout history, by the words in this book. And it's not because the words are bad, it's because the words are powerful. And like fire, okay, because Jeremiah says uh, of God, aren't my words like fire and like a hammer? that breaks the rock in pieces, God's Word is a powerful thing. And a hammer can be used to do something constructively, but a hammer can also be used to do something destructively. It all depends how you use it. And so we looked last week at how to handle the Scriptures, the fact that God has given us three toolboxes, as it were, to handle the Scriptures well. If you missed that, you'll need to get the recording from last week where we looked at those three things. Today, I actually want to look at something that many of you have probably wondered before, and it's very, very practical. How to read the Bible, how to handle the Bible. Today, I want to talk about how to choose a Bible. I said right at the start that while this may not be, uh, okay, no I didn't, I said I wanted to be very practical in this series and one of the things about being practical uh, as opposed to being inspirational, hmm, no that's not the right way to say it, when, you, <laughs> when you're practical and people uh, get a handle on how to do something, 
that can actually be very inspiring because you hear something practical and you go, I know I can do that. Okay, so I want to be very practical and hopefully in that practicality still inspire you to dig into the Scripture by making things really simple. So today, I want to talk about how to choose a Bible. But before we go into that, I need to backtrack a little bit to some of the things I said last week on the process of interpreting the Bible well. I want you to turn, if you have one, to the book of Nehemiah, which is towards the end of your Old Testament. And I'm going to read a story in there that gives you some type of biblical background as to something I shared last week. Last week, I explained that there were three main mechanisms that God has given us to handle the Bible well. The Spirit, the saints, and the science of hermeneutics. Okay, All fancy, you can listen to that from last week. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, we use that from Timothy where Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying so the Lord will give you insight. Do you remember that? Reflect on what I'm saying. And I put it this way. I said, listen, as you come to the Scriptures, the first thing you are to do is, do is read then reflect, and then respond. Read, reflect, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? And then respond to what he says. When it comes to using the saints, other people's perspective, I said you are to read, research, and then respond. How do we know how to handle the Word of God correctly? Other people have done it before us. Okay, so you read, you research what others have said, and then you respond. The third thing I said is the science of hermeneutics. You think things through. We're supposed to read the Bible with our brain. Hello? So you read, you reason, and then you respond. And that pattern, read, reflect, or whatever, and respond, is something that I've got from the book of Nehemiah. So I wanted to see that first before we look at how to choose a Bible. I hope that makes sense. Nehemiah chapter 8 is what I'm reading today. And uh, let's kick this off. This is a story of Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are actually one book originally. Okay, in the Catholic the Catholic tradition, they call it Ezra one and Ezra two. Okay, uh, centuries later, uh, the guys um, I can't remember what the name of the Bible was. I think it might have been the Geneva one. They renamed uh, the one book Ezra and one book Nehemiah to help us understand the main characters. But the point is, Ezra is in the book of Nehemiah. Here we go. It says in chapter 8, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for God's people. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read the book aloud from daybreak until noon. Buckle in, people. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. When we were in Italy last week, we saw a lot of the cathedrals. These, uh, how many of you have been in Catholic, old Catholic churches where they have that high area, that high, like a stairs that go up and the scriptures read from up there okay so everything has biblical roots in those traditions so he stood on a high biblical platform to read the scriptures beside him on his right stood Matthias, Shema, Ananias, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Manasseh some good kids names there and on his left were a bunch of other guys verse 5 Ezra opened the book all the people could see him because he was standing above them and as he opened it the people all stood up 
in some church traditions. Uh, I know I've got a f- friend who's a duchy, and in his church tradition, when he reads the Bible at the start of a message, he gets all his congregation to stand while they read the scripture. Okay, so it comes out of here. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded. They lifted their hands. See? See? They lift, oh, forget it. No, no. They lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Okay, so there you go, one extreme to the other. Oh, we, don't, we don't do that in our tradition. Well, it's there, okay? The Levites, and then it names a whole bunch of them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. I'm going to come back to this verse later. They read, they made it clear, they gave the meaning so people could understand. We're going to come to that back there in a moment. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites were instructing the people, said to them, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, No, no, stop crying. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God, so do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's the verse we know, isn't it? The Levites calmed all the people, saying, hang on, stop crying, okay? Be still, this is a holy day, don't grieve. So all the people went home to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They understood the words that had been made known to them. Back to verse 8. Like I said, I wanted to go back there. Here's a pattern that Chad sees that this is where I get this, these three steps from, how to handle the Scriptures, okay? It says here in verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear. Now, some of us, like I do in my Bible, have a little note there that says that can also be translated. They read from the book of the law of God, translating it. You see, these people had spent the best part of a century growing up in the Assyrian Empire, and they spoke a language that we now call Aramaic. But the Bible that Ezra was reading was not written in Aramaic. It was written in a language called Hebrew. So these men had to read it in Hebrew, but then translate it. What's the first step for us as students of the Scripture? Is to read the book in a language that you understand which for most of you, I assume, (laughs) is going to be English. Because the Bible was not written in your language. The Bible was written in ancient Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there in Daniel and Ezra for good measure, but majority Hebrew and Greek. So we see here in this, this principle, you take the Scriptures, you read it in a language that makes sense to you. The second thing they did, making it clear and giving the meaning. It's not enough to just know what the Bible says, You then have to find out, what does it mean? Here's what it says in a language you understand, and here's what it means. And the next thing that happens is all the people hear hear it, and they respond. Because they know that somehow, this ancient text mattered to them. And they knew intuitively, we need to respond to this. And the Levites say, well, don't respond that way. This is how you should respond. They said, don't cry, you should be happy because this is good news for us. There are three 
Handling the Bible well, there, are, is, there is a three-step process to handling the Scriptures well. And there are three key questions you need to answer. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it matter? What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it matter? And that is the right way to handle the Scriptures. What does it say? Well, you've got to read it in a language that you understand. What does it mean? That sometimes can be a challenge. How many of you have someone in your family, maybe you're married to someone who you know what they said, but that's not what they meant? <laughs> We're not showing hands anymore. We're done with that. Okay, I think we are. That's, I know that's what I said. It's not what I meant. Well, that's one of the big challenges of the Scripture. We, we can know what it says, but some of the challenge and some of the disagreements we have in the Christian world is, but what did God mean when He said that? And that's where a lot of, uh, a lot of theology, basic the theological differences come from. What does it say? What does it mean? And then finally, what does it matter? Okay, so we know that's what God said 2,000 years ago. What the heck does that mean to us here today? And that's also another challenge of knowing how to apply the Scriptures and find application. The Levites are there saying, this does matter to us, and here's an appropriate response. So this is where I get this pattern. We read, we reflect, what does it mean? And then we respond, and we see that here in Ezra. Okay? These are the three steps of interpreting the Bible, of handling the Bible well. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it matter? Today, I want to talk to you about discovering what the Bible says. And in order to find out what the Bible says, you need to read it in a language that makes sense to you. And as most of you would know, you can walk into a Christian bookshop and you will be hit in the face with a horde of acronyms when it comes to different Bibles. Same Bible, but you've got the CEV and the NIV and the NASB and the NALT and the MSG and the TPT and the, the, the uh, Amplified and the, the JB Phillips, okay? What the deal is all these? What Bible should I choose? If I'm to read the Bible, Chad, and I know what it says, but which Bible should I choose? And I want to help you in that very practical way today. Do you understand? That kind of makes sense? Whenever you translate, those of you who speak different languages know that to translate something that's complex isn't that straightforward a thing. There's two main approaches to translating from one language to the other, two big picture approaches. The first is to basically translate word for word. The most best equivalent word for that is that. The best equivalent word for that is that. And you have a word for word translation. Another way to translate is to find not the words, but the meaning, the thought for thought. Okay, Because if you translate word for word, sometimes it can be very rigid and static and it actually ends up not making sense. And so other translators go, well, word for word ends up a bit clunky. What's most important is to translate thought for thought. What is this person trying, what is he thinking when he says that? The fancy pants terms for this is... What's this one called? Formal equivalency. This is the equivalent word in a formal sense compared with dynamic equivalency. This is the equivalent in the dynamic of what he was meaning. Okay? Word for word or thought for thought. Here's some examples. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. The ESV says this. 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. To walk in a manner worthy of God. Now you read that, your job is to read it, to know what it says, and then think about it. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God? Does it look like this? Does it look like this? Which one, which one of those walkings was worthy of God? Some people walk with their chest out like this. Is it that type of walking? Okay. It says the ESV takes quite a word-for-word -word approach. And in the Greek it says, walk in a way that's worthy. But what does it mean to walk? What's, what's the thought behind that? Well, the NIV puts it this way. Next verse. The NIV says, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Oh, okay. So to walk worthy of God, the thought behind that is to live a life worthy of God. So there's two different translations. You see that? ESV is doing the word-for-word -word thing. The NIV is saying, yeah, I know that's the word, but this is the meaning. To walk in a way means to live a life. So it slightly alters that so that you catch the meaning. Do you catch the meaning? Psalm 23, this is a popular one, many of you know this, the NIV says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Now, as a 21st century person, you read that in the NIV, and your job is to go, you anoint my head with oil. Do I want that? What does that, what does that mean? Do I really want oil on my head? And what cup overflows? My coffee cup, okay? What, 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 what does that actually, what does that mean? And this is the idea with a translation, because that's what you're meant to do when you read the Bible. What does it say? And then ask yourself, what does it mean? Well, other translations help you understand the meaning. The New Living puts it this way. You honour me by anointing my head with oil. Oh, so there's something in there about God that's a picture of honouring, okay? My cup overflows with God's blessings. Okay, so they add the word blessings. It's not there in the original Bible. But they add that word to help you understand the meaning. Do you understand that? Can you see that difference? Here's a good one. Christmas. Luke chapter 2. ESV. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, what do you do? You read it. I know what it says. The next question is, what does it mean? Are they registered for a conference? In registering all the, all the world, does that mean this guy's going around registering every plant, every animal, every fish? Are they counting them somehow? Who is Caesar, this Caesar Augustus guy? Is he some type of statistician? What does it mean to register all the world? Well, another translation, the NASB, helps us out a little bit by adjusting it slightly. It says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, this kind of communicates that the registering is only about people, right? It's a registration of people, and a good word for that is the word census. You understand that. That's the thought. Is there a census where people live, where there's an habitation of people? But are you saying that that census of this guy went all the way to Fiji? 
There was people in Fiji 2,000 years ago. Did it reach middle America? Did this census, when Jesus was born, reach the southern tip of Africa? After all, it says the whole world. Is that what it means? So the NIV puts it this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The word Roman is not there in the Greek. But the NIV people know. Hang on. <laughs> I know word for word says the whole world. But we need to help people understand the thought here. We don't want people to think that Caesar Augustus had a census that went all the way to Aboriginal Australia. Because he didn't. Okay, when it says the world, it means the Roman world, the world of Rome. So they add the word Roman there to help convey the thought. And then you think, well, who's this guy called Caesar? Mr. and Mrs. Augustus had a boy and they called him Caesar. Is he a statistician? Is he part of the Roman Bureau of Statistics and conducted a census? You're left to think about who is this guy? Well, the New Living Translation helps you. And it says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus. His name wasn't Caesar. Last name Augustus. Okay? <laughs> he was an emperor and his na first name was Augustus. He was the Roman Emperor Augustus. Degree that essentially should be taken throughout the whole Roman Empire. Oh, Roman world means Roman Empire. So right here, you have quite a different spectrum. You've got the word for word saying registering the whole earth. And then you've got, hang on, there's this emperor called Augustus who registered people who had a census of the Roman Empire. Do you see how those two things are different? It's conveying the thought because over here you are left to think about what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it mean? The thought for thought people help you to not think too much and go, this is what it means. We're helping you to understand. Now, of course, the advantage of that is simple. You don't have to think too hard. Some of you like that. I don't have to think. The disadvantage of that is that these, what these people think it means, they are changing the words according to what they think it means. And there are some scriptures that are a little bit debatable, but the editors put their meaning in there. So sometimes you don't think about things that maybe you should, which is the, where the word for word should come in. I've got examples of that, but I don't want to do that because I do not want to leave you confused. So the idea of thought for thought, those of you with thought for thought Bibles, it says brothers, brothers, brothers. Over here, many modern Bibles say brothers and sisters. Because although the original audience would have been the men who was being read to, that was culture of the first century, the modern day uh, editors want people to know women aren't left out of this thing. That was just a cultural thing for that day. So they add brothers and sisters. You might have a Bible that talks about uh, things being certain height according to cubits. Or you might have a Bible that says, no, 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 this is what it is in meters. Because it's helping you to understand what it actually means. There are certain uh, sayings. Many of us know that a, a saying in Isaiah that says, um, come, let us reason together and I'll take your sins and I'll make you as white as snow. Remember that phrase? I'll make you white as snow. Well, the Wycliffe Bible translators, when they went to North America, they realized that the North American Indians, a lot of the tribes, they didn't know what snow was. 
So what's the point in saying white as snow? So they translated it to white as a, a yucca plant, which is something that they understood. Okay, So it's, it's, it's communicating the meaning. And the extreme thought-for-thought thought versions are what we call paraphrase versions. This will be my last example. I'll use Matthew, a well-known scripture to many of you. Uh, we're Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus in the King James Version says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you grew up with the King James Version? That's a poetic beauty. My yoke is easy. And so, of course, you know the story of a young preacher that got up one day using this passage and he thought, how do I illustrate how my yoke is easy? And so he got an egg. And he cracked the egg. And he tipped the yolk from one half of the egg to the other going, my yoke is easy. See how easily that flies? Okay, so what you've got there is someone who doesn't know the difference between yolk and yolk. And he just doesn't know where the yoke is. So what do the paraphrase people do? Well, uh, there's a, a guy who wrote the Bible called The Message, Eugene Peterson. He, I think he died, died this year. He puts it this way. He, he takes the word yoke out completely. And he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. And work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Do you see how this is not just a thought experiment, but it's also quite extreme on this side, is what we'd call a paraphrase. He's actually putting phrases in there that aren't in the original Greek, but is trying in a modern poet, taking a lot of poetic license to communicate the heart and the thought of this. He takes the word yoke out completely because, of course, a yoke isn't the yellow bit of an egg. It's the bit that joins two oxen together. And so you take my yoke upon you, Jesus is saying, walk with me and work with me, okay? And you'll find rest for your soul when you walk alongside of me. And so Eugene Peterson tries to do that. Brian Simmons in the Passion Translation puts that verse this way. Are you weary, carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me. I will refresh your life, for I am your oasis. Simply join your life with mine. Take my yoke upon you becomes join your yoke, join your life with mine. Learn my ways and you'll discover I'm gentle, humble and easy to please. You will find refreshment and rest in me. For all that I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. What Brian does in this translation is he also takes what Jesus probably said in Aramaic. Now, this is why people debate about uh, Brian's translation. We have the Bible written in Greek, but we know Jesus didn't speak Greek out loud. He spoke Aramaic. And then the people wrote it down in Greek. So it's already been translated. So what Brian does is he tries to imagine what the Aramaic would have been. What possibly could Jesus have said in Aramaic? And then he tries to include that in on his translation. Now, some people have a real issue with that. 
but the point is that's what he's doing. So when he gets the word oasis there, it's because it's what the equivalent could have been in Aramaic has this sense of an oasis feel about it. So it just makes it an interesting perspective on this side of the equation. Have I made any sense there? Some of this, some of you, whoosh, I know this is going to go over your head. Some of you, this is going to mean something and I hope you pick up something. In fact, what I want to do now is I want to just encourage you. I think every serious Bible student should have four Bibles at their disposal. Some of you, this might not, uh, this might, might not be for you yet. You might be too early in your journey as a Christian for this to count for you. But I want to speak to all of you as mature Christians, serious Bible students. I'd encourage every serious Bible student to have four Bibles. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. This is my something old Bible. No. Stop thinking ahead. <laughs> this is what my parents gave me for Christmas. Oh, there's a coffee stain there. In 1994, so I was, what, 15, 16 years of age. This became basically my first ever adult Bible, and it's the NIV, the 1984 edition of the NIV. And over the years, I have tried to change Bible translations, and I just can't. Because, <laughs> like it or not, my memory has been shaped in the fashion and form and flow of this particular translation. So when I quote the Bible in prayer meetings, or I quote the Bible in prayer, or, I'm, or I memorize verses, it's the NIV that comes out, because this is the one that was part of my Bible reading in my formative years. This is the Bible, my something old Bible, that I'll bring to prayer meetings and I'll take to conferences with me, just in case I need to contribute spontaneously. This is the Bible that I want, because I may not remember where an exact verse is, but I remember it's on the left-hand side, down second, halfway down there, highlighted in blue. That's the verse I need. This is my something old Bible, and uh, I just haven't been able to let it go, because it's the one that I've been most familiar with over the years. It's not my most favorite Bible, but it is my most familiar. And I would encourage you to have a Bible. Don't, don't throw out the Bible that you're most familiar with. Okay, It's better to have one sword, old faithful sword at the ready that you know how to use than a cupboard full of weapons that you're just awkward with because you don't know how to find your way around. If you have a something old Bible that you've had for years, own it, use it, love it. For those of you who are new Christians, if you've just got a Bible, listen, draw in it underline it, write notes, put sticky things in there, get a highlighter, write down dates and things when God spoke to you. Get your familiar with your Bible, okay? I think you should bring your something old Bible to church. You should be taking notes. You should be underlining things. This is a Bible that you are familiar with and for goodness sake, love it and own it and let it go old and crinkly and a little bit damaged. Don't leave it in the boot of the car so people think you read it all the time. You know, <laughs> I'll just damage it so people think I'm a good Bible reader. Don't do that, for goodness sake. But have your something old Bible that you're familiar with and uh, enjoy it. The second Bible I have is a new Bible. And this is something I learned from Dad. My dad had a, his something old Bible was a 1977 NASB or whatever. It was light brown. And uh, I think it might have even had the tags on the side. He had it in the 70s when they were part of the Jesus People movement and went to, you know, home groups and Bible school. And, and it was the old NASB, wasn't it? 
New American Standard Bible. So that's my dad's something old Bible, and I kind of remember that as a kid. But my main memory of dad's Bible is when he had a message translation in the 90s. And in the morning, next to his cereal bowl would be a paperback, white Bible of Eugene Peterson's Message Bible. And that was a something new Bible. It meant it was a Bible that had a fresh feel to it. Because sometimes, the longer you know something, the more familiar you become, the less inclined you are to see things in the text that you may have not ever seen before. And so it's good to have a something old Bible, but I encourage you also to have one that's something new. And for me at the moment, my something new Bible is the Passion Translation by Brian Simmons. Again, one of the Bibles that's over here. It's got a different rhythm to it. It's got a different feel to it. He writes different notes that other Bibles just don't seem to have. It's quite a different perspective. And it's not changing my view of the Bible and the world, but it is just giving me a fresh insight. It encourages me to read slower because I'm not that familiar with it. Okay? Something old, something new. And it doesn't have to be new like it's only been put out in the last few years, but it might just be new to you. Okay, a Bible you've never read before, something new. The third Bible I have is something borrowed. And I've got about a dozen of them, okay? And a something, a something borrowed Bible is one that I have on my shelf and I use it for a special occasion and then I put it back when I'm done with it. I just sort of use it from time to time. And so I've got this very awkward one here called Young's Literal Translation. And that is right over here. This is a word for word, very clunky, very difficult to read, but it's the type of one I turn to if I want to really investigate one or two verses and make sure the word for word wording is there. When I actually do want to think, I turn to Young's and see what's the closest to the Greek that word for word they can get. Sometimes I use the Good News Bible down here or the New Living Translation or the message from Eugene Peterson when I'm doing a wedding or a funeral or when I'm speaking at a kid's chapel because I don't want those versions to be clunky. I want it to be really simple that everyone understands the words. Okay, So I just take those Bibles off my shelf and I go, this is the Good News Bible. It's, it's at a, like a grade four reading level. I'm going to use that to speak to this general crowd of people and then I'm going to put it back. Okay, So that's what I call my something borrowed Bible. I don't really know them that well, but they have their own uniqueness that are good, is good at the time to bring out a certain point. Does that kind of make sense? So that's my something borrowed. And then my something blue Bible is not a Bible with a blue cover. My something blue Bible is an electronic Bible. And I call it something blue because who am I kidding? It fits the rhyme, right? That's why I do it. <laughs> But my excuse for calling it something blue is that it is a haven for hyperlinks. You know what a hyperlink is, don't you? And they're blue. And so when you have an electronic Bible, if you're studying something out, oh, come on, that's clever, Luke. What are you doing? <laughs> Just admire it for what it is, please. Um, when, you have a, uh, when you're really studying something out, one of the ideas of having an electronic Bible is that there are software programs that you can read a verse click on the word, and you can search every other occurrence of that word in the whole Bible like that. You can click on a word and work out whether it is plural or singular. English isn't the best language on the planet, my, my friends. Okay, It's for simple people, basically. And one of the issues with English is that we don't have a difference in modern English between you and y'all. In King James... In Shakespeare, in Elizabethan English, we used to. 
We used to have ye and you and thee and thou. And there was a difference between what was singular and what was plural. But in English, if you're reading the word you in the English Bible, you don't know whether it's speaking to an individual necessarily or a group. But you will if you had an electronic Bible and you could click on it and it would say that's in plural form. So it would be what we'd say is yous or y'all, okay? Yeah, okay, you. Okay, so y'all. And so there's those little nuances like that. And also, you know, when a preacher gets up, like I sometimes do, and they read a scripture and they say, in the Greek, that word means blah, blah, blah. And we do it to try to impress you as if we know Greek. We don't, okay? What we do is we have, an electric, we have a Bible program where you can click on the word and see the various nuance of the richness of that word. It's one of the advantages of this clunky Bible here called the Amplified Bible. This is kind of down here in the word-for-word -word situation where it realises that some Greek and Hebrew words can have multiple layers of meaning that the English, one word in English just doesn't capture. And so it takes the word blessed, for example, blessed to the hungry or blessed to the meek or whatever, and it says favoured, loved, applauded, appreciated, blah, 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 in the word blessed because it tries to amplify the meaning of that word. It's a very difficult Bible just to read if you want to get a story because it's way too long, but it helps understand the complexity of the language. Does that make sense? And so your something blue Bible, an electronic version, helps you to see that nuance there. And you don't need to buy a software program anymore. You can go on a website called Bible Hub, Bible Hub, or Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter, there you go, blue, see? Blueletterbible.org, and there's, those websites are free for anyone to use to read the Bible. You can see about 30 translations, all, next, all side by side, next to one another. This is one of my Bibles here that a friend gave me. This is a Bible that has 26 translations in the whole one Bible. And so when there's a significant variance in a word, it brings out another Bible there. Well, the software package can do that. So if you're a serious Bible student, sum up, Chad. Okay, here we go. Malcolm, why don't you come on the keyboard to make me finish. If you're a serious Bible student, I want to encourage you to have four Bibles. See, the question is not which is the right one, or even which one is the best one. Because here's the answer to that question. Chad, which is the best Bible to get? Well, if you're not much of a reader, you want a Bible down here. Uh, Pete, put on that slide where it's got the graph on there. I think I, I think I missed that. You may not be able to see this from how far away you are. But this is basically... Oh, I've, I've got them around the wrong way. <laughs> this is basically... Over here is our word for word. Things like the NASB, the Amplified, the ESV, the King James Version... Thought for thought, you have ones like the NIV, which is the one I grew up on. Over here in the paraphrase, you've got the New Living Translation, the Message Bible, etc. So there is a spectrum. If you're not much of a good reader, then you should definitely read the thought for thought ones where you don't have to think too hard. If you're just reading through the Bible in a year, I just want to get the big story. I don't care about the details. I want to get the big story. Then you definitely need the New Living Translation, which is super duper easy to read. You, it's going to tell you that the Roman emperor had a census in the Roman Empire. Okay, you don't have to think about, think about the whole world issue. It, it's just the easiest to read. But if you're a student, you probably want the word for word. I encourage you, though, to have at least four if you're a serious Bible student. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. But the answer to the question, what is the best Bible for you, is this one. The answer is this. 
It's the one you're gonna read. What's the best one for you? The one you're actually gonna pick up and read. Glenn has told me a story the other week. Some of you have heard it. We'll finish with this. Uh, pastor went to a couple's house and had tea with them or something. They bring out a dessert and uh, the lady brings out her best silverware for the pastor. I don't know why you do that, but anyway. He has a bit of cake and goes home. Oh, that was a lovely visit. And they realise when they're doing the dishes after the pastor's left that one of their best teaspoons has disappeared. This is their silverware. This is their expenses. And it's just, they look at the house. They can't find it. Where did it go? They look under the table. Sitting in church that next Sunday, looking at the pastor, the ideas start thinking, he stole it. He took our nice silver teaspoon. Another week goes by and they're just building resentment. Like they are building up this thing and the pastor stole our nice silver. A month goes by. This woman is furious. She has developed this idea about this pastor who's an absolute thief. How dare he take our silverware teaspoon? Finally, she confronts him just before he preaches, which is the best time to confront a pastor. Let me just say, that's the, if you have, that's the best time to do it. He says, listen, I, can't, I need to get this off my chest. I can't believe you stole my nice silverware teaspoon. Why would you do something? I just can't work it out. And he says, dear, I took that spoon, I cleaned it, and I saw your Bible on the bookshelf. And I stuck that teaspoon in your Bible and it's been a month and you haven't found it. <laughs> okay. The answer to the question, what is the best Bible for you to read, is the one that you're going to read. All right. I want to encourage you this winter, word up, get your scripture out, use a pen, use a pencil, have a plan, listen to these messages again and dig deep into the scriptures. Okay? Amen. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.